Well, the, uh, the title of the sermon is The Resounding Resurrection. And this is the second to last sermon in the Gospel of Luke. I believe we're going to have a total of 74 sermons through this Gospel. And I want to begin where we left off last week, just so we can put our, our feet on the ground and, and, and remember the scene and kind of enter in again, okay? So last week, Jesus calls out with a loud voice and he said, Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He died. He died. This is much sooner than the Romans expected, but his work was finished. There was no need to continue on on the cross. And so he gave his spirit to the Father, entrusted him uh, to his care, and he breathed his last. His head, in uh, another gospel, it says his head dropped. He was gone. Now, it was 3 p.m. Darkness had been reigning for three hours straight. At this moment, when he gave up his spirit, the veil was torn, all those things that happened last week. We talked about an earthquake, uh, tremors, graves broken open, and then little by little, the sunlight began to return. And the people, I mean, you just imagine standing there. After watching these events, you're just paralyzed. Is he really gone? That's it? The silence of this moment would have been incredibly just pressing in on those who were there. It says they began to depart and go back to their houses, beating their breasts. What happened? How can this be? What have we done? That is the moment we're in. It's almost like what happens after uh, the, the big riot, right? You know, there's all this chaos, all this, this noise and event, and then just people just begin to disperse and go home. And then it's just a mess. It's just a mess. What are we going to do? What do we do now? How do we figure this out? That's where we are at. So courageous love, verse 50, chapter 23. Courageous love. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Luke introduces us now to Joseph of Arimathea, a man that we otherwise have never met. We don't know this man. We, we just meet him here, and he gives us a lot of uh, teaching about who he is. He's from a town that's about 9 to 10 miles north of Jerusalem, not far away. He's also on the 71-member council of the Sanhedrin. Now, a few weeks ago, I think I said 70. I stand corrected. 71. 71. This is the 71st probably, right? Here he is, Joseph. And note this. He is a good and righteous man. He is a God-fearing man. He walks in the way of the Lord. He seeks to obey the Lord. And he did not consent to the killing of Jesus Christ. The kangaroo court left him out. He was not there when they voted unanimously, kill him. I think they probably purposely let him uh, not know about their gathering. It says he was looking for the kingdom of God. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we read this. He was a disciple of Jesus. He had heard Jesus teach. He had, he had been there in the temple courts. He had, he had changed his heart. God, by his sovereign grace, had stirred him to say, 
that is the Messiah. He is the one, the promised one. He is the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Man, the one who is promised and is now here. But secretly, he followed Jesus because of fear of the Jews. Think of this. He's on the Sanhedrin. The very people that have just killed Jesus with their own authority, he's endorsing. He's a follower of. So you talk about courageous love. This man says, okay, secrecy, no more. That's it. I'm coming out of the shadows. I'm coming right to the very top of the authority structure. And he goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. This man went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. He didn't, he didn't wait around. He went straight to the top. In fact, we read that in another gospel, Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. So he went and had the, the centurion brought to Pilate to confirm, in fact, that Jesus was dead. When he found this out, he said, sure, you can, you can take the body of Jesus. <clears throat> We read in this in another gospel as well that the legs of the thieves were broken uh, with a club. They broke their legs, which is a death sentence in a hurry because if you can't push up to get air, you're going to die. And they did very quickly after that. So now comes the cleanup. How do you, how do you even respond? What a mess. Everybody's leaving. What do you do? It's three o'clock on the day of preparation. We're talking Passover is about to begin in three hours. The Jewish leaders say we cannot have the body of Christ held high above the city. It will defile our entire Passover. He has to be addressed. Someone has to take care of this. Joseph takes uh, the initiative and, and beats him to the punch. It says he took him down and wrapped him in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. Now, think about this, a few things. First of all, the courage that it took for Joseph to do this, but then also the defilement. He is part of the Sanhedrin. He is a very public and recognized leader of the Jews. Any Jew knows that if you're preparing for the Passover gathering and feast, you do not touch a dead body. No, no hesitation. He goes, and he begins to try to get Jesus down off the cross. Now, think about the somber and significant task this would be. I had never thought about how hard this would be. We've, he's on his own at this point. He is, he is the one who is tasked to get him down. Now, maybe the Romans were able to lift the cross up out and lay it down at least for him to get the body, or I don't know, there was a ladder or something, but this is tough, very gruesome. How do you get a man who's nailed to a cross? down. How do you get him off of there? Well, you can't get the nails out. And so, I'll spare the details, but it was very difficult to get Jesus off of the cross from out under those nails. And then, the, the crown of thorns that's been pounded into his head, pulling those out little by little. This was a gruesome task. He would have then washed the body of Jesus and cleaned him off that requires water. He's up on the hill. I mean, this man is working hard. The question that I have is, wh where's the disciples? What the, this, is a, this is a nobody, basically, to Jesus. And he is owning the work of caring for the body of the Messiah. 
One of the things you know as you read your Bible is that bodies matter. Our physical bodies are not just a waste. This is not just a a soul here in residence in this corrupt flesh and then just get rid of that and then be, be rid of it. No, we are spirits and we are bodies. And that is true both of now and forever. Resurrected bodies are going to be real, tangible. You can feel, taste, see. We're going to eat. In fact, we'll see that soon. How we bury bodies matters. It shows regard for the creation of God. Rather than having Jesus' body thrown in a dump with the rest of those who were crucified, tossed out like garbage, Joseph says, absolutely not. I will care for this man. I will, I will honor his body and wash it and clean it and prepare it for burial. What we find, amazingly, is that as he's doing this, Nicodemus shows up. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, a secret disciple. Bringing, he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. This is no small task. He's lugging up the hill all of these, these uh, spices and aloes that they would use to help wrap the body, basically to overpower the stench of death with sweet-smelling aromas. So it says, they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths and spices, and then they would have carried the body of Jesus to the tomb. Now, you've got to go back at this point and just remember Nicodemus, okay? John chapter 3, remember this exchange? He comes by night, he's a Pharisee. Maybe that's how he knows Joseph of Arimathea. Maybe they're friends and they had this plan, like, we've got to care for Jesus' body. I don't know. But Jesus responded at one point and he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, how did he do that? On a stake, as God had commanded him. Put a stake in there and that serpent is to be held high. Why? It all pointed to Jesus. So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Have you seen uh, an ambulance go by recently? Do you realize the signia on the side of, uh, of an ambulance points back to this exchange of Moses lifting the serpent up on a stake that all who look to that serpent would immediately be healed? They looked in faith just like we look in faith to the Son of Man who was put high on the stake for the world to know the love of God. You see these things? Nicodemus has just witnessed the fulfillment of Jesus' words to him in that night exchange that they had all those days ago. So he's there, and I believe he is a saved man. He is a follower of Jesus now, and they work together. They put Jesus in a new family tomb. This tells us a lot about Joseph of Arimathea. He's not an old man. This is a, a tomb that he has purchased in a very special ground. Only rich could really do this. It was an expensive tomb carved in the stone, which was more than just a cave or just a a hole. This was a a stone-carved tomb that had a rolling stone in front of it, also unique and expensive. None of his family has yet been buried in this tomb, which means they're still alive, which means Joseph isn't all that old. He's a wealthy man. This 
fulfills Isaiah. Crucified with criminals, yet in his death with a rich man. In his death. What an amazing thing how God brings us together. Now it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him uh, from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Do you feel the timing here? You see what this is? Now, this is significant. Why does Luke want us to know that the women followed Joseph and Nicodemus to the tomb to see where they put Jesus? Well, this is important because one of the greatest lies that was propagated early on is that the women went to the wrong tomb the next morning after the Passover was done, after they rested on the Sabbath. That, that, that on Sunday morning, they, they ran to the wrong tomb and it was empty. And then they began to say, well, Jesus must have risen. That's not true. They saw where he was buried. They knew the exact location and that is the place they returned to. Luke wants us to see that. But isn't it interesting that two relative strangers are the ones that would take the leading role in this work to bury Jesus and take care of him that way? Grave location is important. Timing is also important. Just think of this, Jesus' words. He said they will mock him and spit on him, being the son of man, Jesus referring to himself. And they will flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Listen, if Jesus is not in the tomb buried before 6 p.m. on Friday, we're talking two days, not three days. The Jewish uh, custom was to count any part of a day as a day. So it's Friday, and as time begins to pass, Joseph is working to finish his work before the Passover day begins. It also is the fulfillment of prophecy, both of Jesus and in the Old Testament. The, the sign of Jonah, right? Three days. So part of Friday, all of Saturday, and Saturday night at 6 p.m., Sunday begins. And the resurrection takes place early on Sunday. You have three days. That's how we see this fulfilled. That's how Jesus understood it, and that's how it happened. Now, what if Joseph of Arimathea would have said, no, I'm, I'm too afraid? What if Jesus' body had not been in the grave before 6 o'clock or sundown when the Passover began? He would have been a liar. Old Testament prophecy would have failed, and there would have been a major problem. Every single piece according to plan in place as God ordained. Now, resurrection and recollection, verse 1 of chapter 24. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So they get up early. And one of the things that Luke does, this is so important to re realize, Luke is giving a, a summary account of these events, not a chronological, you know, piece-by-piece -piece accounting. So you actually have to put all four Gospels together and see, well, who got there first? Mary Magdalene, right? Early. She ran ahead of this group, and she had this experience. And then the others came, and then Mary stayed after, and then Peter and John ran. So it's, it's really quite amazing, all of the things that take place on Sunday morning. Let's stick with Luke and, and let him kind of lead us through this. So here we have a group of ladies, 
And it is Sunday morning early. At early dawn, they head down to the tomb. They know where to go. They pick the right tomb. And when they get there, which, by the way, I, I, I've always wondered my whole life, what did they think they were going to do? Like, they have all these spices. The tomb is not just closed. It's sealed by the Romans. They sealed it because of fear that someone would steal the body and then say, well, he rose from the dead. I don't know how they thought they were going to get in, but they go trying to figure that out as they walked. It says in, I think, Gospel of Mark, they were trying to figure out how they're going to deal with that stone. They get there, and the stone was rolled away, so they may have thought, oh, this is wonderful. The gardener is here, and, and uh, he's opened the stone for us to, to get in there and take care of Jesus' body, but they go in, and there is no body. There's no body. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. As they were frightened and bowed their faces, which is always the response when you have uh, angelic visitors, they bowed their faces to the ground, probably both in fear and trying to shield themselves from these dazzling beings who are dressed in white and resplendent in light and glory. The men said to the ladies here, this is that classic line, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember, key word in your Bible, underline that. Remember, remember, remember. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified and on the third day rise. It's an interesting exchange that these angels bring. First, they kind of bring a, it's a loving and gentle rebuke. Ladies, you're looking for him in the wrong place. Did you expect to see him here dead? Don't you remember what he said? Everything is going according to plan. He's not here. He's risen. Hmm. At these words, they remembered Jesus' words. They remembered these, these predictions, these prophecies that Jesus spoke. He couldn't have spelled it out any clearer. This is exactly what's going to happen. Be ready. And somehow, it's like it just didn't process. It didn't calculate. I, we don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. What do you mean crucified, buried, and raised? Uh, that, that doesn't compute. Returning from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and there's a lot of Marys here, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women. So at least five, probably six or seven ladies who were with them. And they told these things collectively then to the apostles. But the words seemed to the apostles as an idle tale. They did not believe them. This would have been tough. This would have been a little tough. These ladies come in. You have multiple ladies who have experienced this uh, angelic, uh, prophetic proclamation, and they come back. They're excited. They're not sure exactly what to make of it all, but they know one thing. He's not there. He's not there. And they remember Jesus' words, but the apostles, it's like they're just blinded by despair. They can't even begin to enter. Don't even try to get my hopes up. I am crushed. I am discouraged. I am depressed. I don't want to even attempt this. But we do know that Peter and John, 
We read about this in John, in, in the Gospel of John. John was with Peter. They, they rose and ran. Now, it also says in the Gospel of John that, that the Apostle John outran Peter. Which is a little bit, you know, he just uh, he got, got there first. Uh, Peter, though, when he got to the tomb, he didn't hesitate at the edge. He just ran right on in. He ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. One of the things that may have been in their minds, certainly it was in the ladies' minds, is that someone stole his body. The hatred was such that there was no regard for Jesus, even in his death. Maybe grave robbers came and tried to steal him away. Well, the problem with that is that if you're going to steal the body of a deceased man, you're not going to spend the time to unwrap it, right, and just run off with the body. You're you're far easier going to steal a body if it's wrapped head to toe. They go in and they see the linens lying in one place, and then the face cloth we learn in the Gospel of John folded up neatly and set down. What's that mean? Well, it points to something far greater than grave robbers, unless they were really like obsessive-compulsive grave robbers. You know, (laughs) we're stealing the body. Okay, hold on. Let me fold the napkin. (laughs) Like, you know, maybe Martha Stewart involved, but I This is purposeful evidence that Jesus leaves as he unwraps after he is raised and folds the napkin, his face covering, and sets it here and the other clothes that he unwraps and and leaves here. It's it's just, just amazing. And they marvel at these things. But I don't think, I think John begins to believe here, Peter is not quite there yet. He's still struggling with this. Now, dazed and discouraged, verses 13 to 24. We change uh, location here. All of a sudden, the the, the focus of of Luke shifts from Jerusalem to those who are beginning to leave Jerusalem now on Sunday. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. By the way, that's, that's west. So they're going downhill, down the city, seven miles. It's a pretty significant elevation drop uh, when we're there in February, we're going to drive right past Emmaus, ancient Emmaus, on our way up to Jerusalem at the crescendo of our tour. And uh, so we'll be able to point that out, and you can see where they were going on that road. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Okay, first of all, let's figure out who we have here. I believe that we have uh, some really good, solid reasons to believe that this is actually Uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary. Uh, Cleopas, we find his name coming up here soon. Uh, it, it is very, very close to Clopas that we read in the Gospel of John. And um, Mary, his wife. And so it's very likely that this man who is believed to be the uncle of Jesus, the brother of Joseph, his dad, uh, named Clopas or Cleopas, and his wife, Mary. So here they are. They live in Emmaus. They've come into the Jerusalem for Passover, and it's over. They're gone. And they have left now before the ladies have returned with this message. They're, they're heading home. They haven't, 
really uh, understood the significance of this. They, I think they actually did hear the report, but they don't embrace it. They don't believe it. So they're heading down on the road, and you just got to just put yourself on the, on the path with, with Uncle Cleopas and uh, Aunt Mary. They're walking. They're discouraged. They're distraught. They're, they're, they're sad. They're probably not, you know, tearing it up as they head down. They're walking like this. Jesus has just resurrected after being dead for three days, okay? Jesus catches up with them, and I picture it's either one of these. You know, either he's jogging or he's speed walking. He's feeling good, whatever it is. He catches them, and then he joins the conversation. They don't know it's him. Somehow, their eyes are prevented from seeing who it is that is with them. And he says to them, hey, why are you guys so sad here? What's going on? Did somebody die? No, that's my version. He says, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stop in their tracks. They stood still, looking sad. And here comes a bit of a rebuke, right? They don't have any idea this is Jesus, the risen Savior. Then one of them named Clopas, Cleopas answered and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What, have you been living in a cave? (laughs) For three days? (laughs) Jesus responds, just, he just, what things? (laughs) Just, I mean, you've got to see that Jesus has a sense of humor. It's not unholy for Jesus to, to be joyful and even kind of play this out a little bit. What things? And so they began to chronicle the events. The things concerning him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and and crucified him. Now note the tense of these next words. But we had hoped, underline, underline, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, you could almost hear Mary chime in, and besides this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. All they see is darkness, death, the echo of the cross, Moreover, some of our women, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. This is the same day, same day. And they were there, and, and, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And that's where they're stuck. Him they did not see. The evidence is screaming fulfillment. And where are they going? They're going home. There's, there's no way he's alive. After what we saw, not a chance. What are they forgetting, friends? What are they forgetting? They're forgetting this is the Messiah. This is the man who said to Lazarus, who was four days dead, come out. And the dead man obeyed him. 
This man who raised the dead on multiple occasions with words. But him they did not see. Now, they're about to go to school with Jesus, and they don't know it. Open eyes and burning hearts. Open eyes and burning hearts. Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Look at where he points them. He points them to the Word of God. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter in his glory? And then it says, beginning with Moses, the law, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they, they pick up again and begin to walk. And Jesus, with great love and care, begins to open their eyes. What do you think was going on in Exodus? What do you think Passover is all about? What do you think this? What about that, that stake that was raised up the snake on the stake. What's that all about? That's me. Well, he doesn't say that. That's, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Over and over and over. We're going to look more at this in the final sermon in Luke as we see Jesus all through the Old Testament. Pointed to again and again. This is what he does. He opens. It's like Bible study, Old Testament with Jesus. A few things this shows us is that Jesus was a firm believer in the centrality of the Word of God. What a gift we have in God's Holy Word. Jesus could have just said, let me give you an experience and that'll be enough. Rather than doing that, first he said, come to the book. It is written. It is written. It is written. It is fulfilled. It is fulfilled it is fulfilled. Over and over, Jesus drives us to the Word of God to found our confidence. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It's all about Jesus. Every page of your Bible, in one way or another, is pointing to Him. Once you believe this, once you see this, your Bible will come alive like never before. All of these Old Testament books that so many just relegate as old and really not relevant. We should just study the New Testament. No, you'll never understand Jesus unless you study the Old Testament. And you'll never appreciate the New Testament without that backdrop. Jesus is the high point of all the revelation, both of the Old and of the New. It's all about Him. Now, the story continues they drew near to the village which they were going and Jesus acted as if he were going farther. I love this. This is so great. He's like, all right, guys, it's been great. I'm gonna keep... No, 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 wait. They urged him strongly. This is like, don't leave. Stay with us. We insist. We will host you. For it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them and while he was at table with them, he took the bread, which, don't miss this. The man of the house, the home that is established, he is always the one who takes the bread. Jesus comes into their home as a guest, and Jesus takes the bread. Something's happening here. All of a sudden, there's something different happening in this, this meal. Who is this man who takes the bread? Hmm. 
He took it and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. What a sequence of events. He took the bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. Where are we? Do we remember this exchange? The Last Supper. This echo of this special evening. Likely that, that uh, Cleopas and his wife were standing back away from the table in a, in a, a kind of a second circle of disciples there as Jesus shared that final meal. They would have seen him do this when he fed the 5,000, right? How many times had Jesus in the life of his ministry taken the bread, blessed it, and broken it, and divided it out for the people? Another commentator suggested, and I think it's, it's very possible that as he did this, watch what happens. He holds out the bread, and he breaks it open, and then he gives it. What are they seeing? You see that? They see the scars. They see his hands. Now, what's interesting is it says their eyes were opened. Not they opened their eyes. It is, it is a supernatural, sovereign opening of their eyes. They've been prevented from seeing him. And in this moment, God is so gracious to open their eyes to see Jesus for who he truly is. Friends, that is the way people are saved. That is what the Spirit of God does. In the proclamation of his word, however it meets you, at a point along the way, he sovereignly reaches down to do what you cannot do on your own, to open your eyes to see Jesus as Savior and Lord, and treasure. He still opens eyes. I'm praying even today He'll open eyes in this place. That's why we pray, Lord, open their eyes. Help them see You. Change their heart, O oh God. Help them treasure You. Help them turn from their sins and, and walk in Your way. And then, he vanished from their sight. Now, talk about a moment, okay? You're, you realize you've been hanging out with Jesus for the past few hours. He's in your home. He's serving you bread, and then, bam, he's gone. The bread drops to the table. What are they going to do? Oh, I tell you what we would do. Exactly what they said. They said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? We should have known it was Jesus. We were like, oh my goodness, this is blowing my mind. This is the best teacher that's ever walked the face of the earth. And Jesus is like, mm-hmm, correct. Now, elated eyewitnesses, elated. Listen to how they respond. They rose that same hour. They're seven miles down from Jerusalem. It's dark. It's dangerous. And they haven't really eaten dinner yet. So they grab the bread. They stuff it in a bag. He's like, Mary, get your staff. We're going back to the city right now. Let's go. We got to tell them what has happened. They return to Jerusalem. 
would have taken him probably two, two and a half hours to climb uphill. Difficult, but I imagine they covered it pretty good, pretty fast. They found the 11 who were with them gathered together. There was increasing fervor in this gathering. They were there. They weren't sleeping. They were awake. And when they walk in the door, listen to how this goes. The gathering people, the people who were gathered said, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They don't even get the words out yet. They open the door and they're like, hey. And boom, it comes their way, confirming what they just experienced. Now, this is an amazing response. We don't have the record of, in any of the Gospels, of this exchange when Jesus shows up to Peter himself. We don't have that built out for us. We do see it in Paul that he appeared to Simon. We see this, this wonderful exchange, and, and then here he is. He appeared to Simon, and they're like, well, guess what? He walked with us, and our eyes were open. How he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The witness of those who have seen the risen Savior. Hmm. Our response this morning, I just want to consider some of these things. The Apostle Paul, who, by the way, was one that Jesus appeared to, right? On the road. Knocked him off his horse, actually. And called him from his murderous persecution of Christians to be a church planter and a traveling missionary. Paul says this, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He goes on to say, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. You have no hope. You know, there are people, friends, who deny the resurrection. There are people who will say, well, Jesus was quite an amazing man. He certainly stood out as a teacher. What a great guy. And he was certainly a martyr. But that's all. There are even entire denominations to this day that talk about this, this spiritual resurrection. Not a physical, bodily resurrection, but Jesus is... You know, he's alive in that sense. He's kind of with us, right? He taught his, his spirit, the spirit of Jesus. That's hogwash. It's not what the Gospels record at all. If we believe that all we have is kind of just this, this wishful thinking of the kind of the echo of his life, this, his spirit is kind of floating around, then we are dead and lost in our sins and we are to be pitied. We are fools. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hinge upon all of our faith. Everything stands or falls. If he is not raised, then he is a liar, not a good man, a terrible prophet, a terrible teacher. But he has been raised. We go back to the call to worship. Oh, death, where is your victory? Paul exalts in our Savior. O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, a risen Lord, a risen Lord. The only hope of overcoming sin is through Him. That's the only hope. And friends, we're all sinners. Everyone in this room is a sinner. 
We are destined for wrath unless Jesus is our Savior, unless we look to Him in faith and, and we cry out, oh, save me, open my eyes to see you, to treasure you, to turn to you, to turn from my sin and embrace you as King and Lord and treasure. Most of the people I know here in this room have done that. Praise God for that. What a gift of God's grace that is. We don't deserve this. If you're here today and you have yet to do this, make today the day that you place your trust in Him. You turn and make Him your Savior alone, your hope in this life and the next. Lastly, I just want to point this out. We see in the resurrection of Jesus, and we'll see next uh, in, the, in the final sermon, that He carries scars from His gift of atonement and love. He carries the scars in his hands. He carries the, the, the pierced side, that scar as well. And I imagine all of the stripes on his back, scars. And where his feet were nailed, scars. Why is that so beautiful? I tend not to think of scars as beautiful. But without those scars, those everlasting scars, we're dead meat. We don't stand a chance before the wrath of God. He took the wrath that we deserve. And the love of God is set eternally on display forever in the display of a perfect sinless son who carries the scars in my place. The scars that should have been mine, yours. It is the glory of God. It will always be in view. It is His eternal glory. Let's pray. Oh God, we give thanks and praise to You for an amazing victory that You have accomplished in Your Son, Jesus Christ. We have victory through His victory by faith. Lord, we look to You today and pray that You would Send this message deep into the hearts and souls and minds of all in this hearing and, and all who would listen online. We thank you that we have good news to carry, that we similarly have witnessed the, the victory of your Son, our Savior Jesus. We thank you that unlike Muhammad, that unlike Hare Krishna, that unlike Joseph Smith, that unlike Buddha, we have a Savior who lives today and reigns and rules. We do not look for the living among the dead today. We look, Lord, to a King, a Savior, a Lord, a risen and reigning King. We thank You for the hope that this brings, Father, because apart from this victory, we would be fools, pitiable, lost in our sins. We give praise to You and thanks for your glorious grace. Jesus, thank you for carrying my scars, for dying my death, and for overcoming the power of Satan and the breaking the power of sin that I might be forgiven and live. Father, I pray if any are here and they have yet to embrace you in that way, I pray that you would open their eyes, even now, sovereignly, Holy Spirit, move and stir. Help them to see Jesus 